It's time for a Big Blue Kickoff Live. Nobody can ever tell you that you couldn't do it because you did. On Giants.com. You know what I saw? New York Giant Prime. And the Giants mobile app. We'll punch you in the nose for 60 minutes with a relentless competitive attitude. Part of the Giants Podcast Network. Let's go out there like a bunch of crazy dogs. Have some fun. Welcome to Wednesday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live on Giants.com and the Giants mobile app. John Schmuck, Lance Meadow with you. It's all presented by the New York Lottery. Today's guest is going to be Giants legend, Hall of Famer, Ring of Honor member, and the forever captain of the New York football Giants, Harry Carson. He joins us right now on Big Blue Kickoff Live. Harry, you got John Schmuck and Lance Meadow here at various locations on remote. Thank you so much for being with us. Hope you and your family are safe and healthy, my friend. Yeah, we are. Everything's going pretty well right now, so I just hope it stays that way. Yes, so do we, Harry. No question about it. Uh, Unfortunately, we did get some sad news a couple days ago. Uh, Your former coach, Marty Schoenheimer, he was the position coach uh, for the Giants and linebacker when you got to the NFL. Um, Why don't you just tell us a little bit about Marty Schoenheimer, the coach and the man uh, that you got to know so well here with the New York Giants? Well, Marty wasn't just my coach, but he was a friend and um, <clears throat> very brave man. Uh, he he was probably the best teacher when it comes to the fundamentals of football that I've ever seen. Um, keep in mind, when I say this, it kind of blows people away, but I'd never played middle linebacker until I was drafted by the Giants in 1976. And um, Marty was the guy who drafted me. I was his choice out of all the other players around the country. I was his choice. And he chose me on a whim that I could play um, the middle linebacker standing up position as opposed to a down uh, nose tackle uh, defensive end position that I played in college. And so everything that Marty tried to get me to do when he was giving me, running me through the fundamentals of just playing the game, I, I sort of did it my way, and it wasn't his way, but he allowed me to do it because I felt comfortable. But the other thing is he recognized that I was able to do or, or come to the same results, me doing it my way as opposed to doing it his way. Sometimes he got better results out of me, allowing me to just do it my way. So... He was the he was the coach who knew exactly what to do in in regards to uh, players' um, talents and so forth. I remember going out to Hawaii for the Pro Bowl one year, and I ran into Derek Thomas, who was um, uh, he's a Hall of Fame linebacker from the Kansas City Chiefs, and we were just sort of sitting and talking and just talking about Marty and how he was such a great teacher. And so when we lost him, um, you know, I just recognized that he was such a great teacher. I mean, there are some coaches who are not very good teachers. You know, they can coach, but he knew the the fundamentals that he he wanted you to have. And so when um, I became that player starting midway through my rookie year, uh, I sort of validate, validated Marty choosing me with, I think it was like the 104th pick 
in the 1976 draft for the Giants. Harry, you mentioned that he made that decision on a whim when the Giants took you in the fourth round about moving you from the defensive line to linebacker. What do you think he saw in you? Because as you can attest to, there's risk-reward. Whenever you make a decision like that to move a player to a position that, to your point, you've never played before, what specifically from the conversations you had with him that he saw in your skill set that thought that you would make a very good interior linebacker? I can't really say exactly what he saw. He, he never really went into that, but he felt like I was smart enough to make the transition. And there's a Dr. Frank LaDotta, who used to be involved with the Giants. I spent a lot of time with Dr. LaDotta for him to see whether, you know, I could make that transition because everybody can't do that. They, they can't, you know, if you start playing a position when you're a kid, generally you're going to play that position until you stop playing. Well, for me, I never played middle linebacker. I played, you know, lineman in high school, college. I had a really great uh, college career. But then to come to New York, the media capital of the world, to learn a new position. And that position really is the quarterback of the defense. And to have him choose me to play that position, um, he had to be completely um, right about his hunch. And what they needed wasn't like a Lawrence Taylor type. They wanted an inside run defender, somebody who could step up and plug the holes and so forth with force, take on the center, take on guards and tackles and so forth, and be able to stop the running back. And I guess he saw that in me, and he taught me how to, you know, everything about the position. And uh, I, I started midway through my rookie year against the Minnesota Vikings. And, um, you know, the rest is history. I, I'd like to say that had it not been for Marty Schottenheimer, there would never have been a Harry Carson. There would never have been a Harry Carson as a New York Giant there would never have been a Harry Carson uh, Hall of Famer because Marty really was the key. If I had not uh, been able to make that transition, it would have been on Marty. But because I did make the transition and play well, uh, as I may have alluded to earlier, I wound up making the all-rookie team. And a couple of years later, after Marty was gone, I was able to become um, – you know, NFC linebacker of the year. Um, and I went from a 4-3 defense that I was able to master to when Parcells came in, and we went from a 4-3 to a 3-4. And so Marty is was really the catalyst for me playing the position. And we spent a lot of quality time t- together. One of the things that he shared with me, and this is why I love Marty so much, he was brutally honest with me. And he said, there are going to be people who are going to doubt your ability to play this position because they, he, he said, there are people who feel like if you don't come from a big-time program, 
like Southern Cal or Alabama or Notre Dame, then you're not going to be able to play that position. I went to South, Little South Carolina State. I'd never played the position of, of middle linebacker, but I was able to make that transition and play it. But Marty believed in me, and I don't know if any other coach would have believed in me that much as much as, as he did. And so I really loved the man, uh, not just the coach, but the man. And you find that anybody who has played for Marty really loved and respect him as a man because he, he didn't just look at you as a ball player. He looked at you and he treated you like a man. And that's what players want. They want to be treated as men and they want to be treated with dignity and respect, not to be talked down to in any way. But we were all in it for the same thing, and that, that is to um, win the game, become the best players that we could be, and so forth. And, and Marty, uh, again, I attribute so much of my success to Marty Schottenheimer. You're listening to Big Blue Kickoff Live, which is part of the Giants Podcast Network, presented by Investors Bank. We're joined by Giants legend, Pro Football Hall of Famer, Harry Carson. And Harry, before we get to the present-day Giants, uh, great stuff on Marty Schottenheimer, by the way. Just awesome stories. Uh, The one thing you mentioned in that second answer struck me a little bit. And I'm thinking about how they look at the modern-day linebacker position, and I feel like they're more likely to convert a safety to a linebacker than a defensive lineman these days. What are your thoughts in terms of how the NFL views that the linebacker position now compared to when you were playing and just how the position and maybe even some of the responsibilities have either changed or not changed over the years? Well, I think the game has changed from the standpoint that Uh, It's not quite as physically demanding as it used to be. When you're playing a 4-3 defense and you're you're playing against offensive linemen who are coming off the ball and they're coming off to block you with all the force that they have, your job is to plug the hole wherever you think the ball is is going. Sure. And so now you have a lot of off-tackle plays, you have a lot of reaching and grabbing. Um, you, you know, we used to go up against the sled all the time in terms of how to effectively, you know, ward off a block because they were coming, you know, offensive linemen were coming at you not just to grab and hold you like I see a lot now uh, on the field, you know, during games. But they're they're coming out with their bodies against yours, and so you have to attack the offensive lineman. One of the things that we had to do is, you know, use your forearm to hit the guy in the face and lift and hit him with all the power that you you have, and and um, you know, grab and sling them wherever the ball is going, sling them in the opposite direction, and make the make the tackle. So. You know, when I played back during that era, and I hate to say this because it seems like I'm so old now, but (laughs) when players played during that era, it was more of a physical game. No, you're right. Than than what it is now. And so, you know, it was about survival of the fittest, and you didn't necessarily run around blocks. You engaged the guy in front of you, and you took him on, 
and it was power against power. And then you had like perhaps a like a John Riggins, who was a power running back, who's behind him that you have to get you have to get that guy who's like two hundred and eighty, two hundred and ninety pounds off of you. And then you had to hit the the running back who had the ball and he was running with a full head of steam. So, you know, it's a different game now. Um I don't I'm not that close to coaches now to understand whether, you know, they look at players now and make and try to get them to go from being a safety to a linebacker. If it's a, if if they're talking about doing it in a linebacker position, it probably will be as a rush linebacker, not necessarily a inside run defender linebacker. Sure. Well, Harry, I think the one thing you could perhaps argue that hasn't changed from the time in which you played versus how they view today's middle linebacker is the intellect, which is always a key component. And I want to bring it to today's Giants because you look at the impact that Blake Martinez made on this past season's team and what he did for Patrick Graham's defense as being that guy that could get everybody set. When you made the move to middle linebacker, how much, Harry, did you take on that persona that you were an extension of the defensive coordinator, an extension of the defensive coaching staff, and you were critical in getting everybody set similar to what Blake Martinez has brought to this current Giants defense? Well, the good thing is um, most of what we did back then, it was, you know, we, we were trained well in practice. Uh, we may have had little stunts that we uh, threw in there, uh, but I was the middle linebacker and I became the signal caller. And, and that's the other thing that I really need to touch on in regards to Marty, because I went from being that down defensive lineman, just knowing what I had to do and the tackle next to me and maybe the linebacker next to me, to knowing what everybody had to do. And so it, it's one of those things where you practice certain things during the course of the week, and we might want to show a certain look prior to the, slap, to, to the uh, snap of the ball. And... You know, it's about just calling out um, the movement that we needed to make at that time, just prior to just having, just anticipating when the ball is going to be snapped, uh, making sure that you get your ta- your tackle ends or whatever to shift when they when they need to shift, so that uh, you know, in in disguising what you're doing, it catches the offense off guard. So. You know, there are things now that might be a little different than back in the 70s and 80s, but I, but I would venture to say there are probably things that uh, we did back in the 20s and not the 20s. I'm getting too old now. <laughs> uh, the, the 70s and 80s that guys don't necessarily do now. But talking about Blake Martinez, I've watched him during the course of this season. And there are a lot of players who have played the position of, like, inside or middle linebacker um, in the last few years. Blake Martinez is the real deal. 
as far as I'm concerned, because he he does not miss tackles. He has that force that you know he can stick it up in there and and movement and so forth. He's a very active um, middle linebacker. Um, I applaud him because from what I from what I see, and, and I know he. He's not like a young guy in this league. I mean, he, I know he's played with uh, Green Bay, and yep. he, I watched him when he was at Green Bay, and I, I thought he was solid, fine for the Giants. Uh, but I thought he did a really, really good job um, as that signal caller and playing that position. And I look forward to seeing him more, you know, in the future. What were your overall thoughts on the defense this year, Harry? I thought it was by far their best performance since probably back in 2016 when, you know, Snacks was here with OV and, and Janoris Jenkins and all that. Uh, I think you had to be pretty impressed by the job Patrick Graham did, kind of putting everything together, uh, disguising, trying to confuse opposing offenses. Uh, uh, did you have fun watching what this Giants defense did out there this year? You know, I really didn't think that the Giant defense or, you know, the team in general – was going to be very good, you know, because you have a new coach. You weren't alone, Harry. Coordinator. Don't feel bad about it. You weren't alone yeah. in that. Trust me. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, you you got everything is new, and it you have, you know, free agents. I mean, there are guys out there I've never heard their name or anything before, and you see them, and early in the season, they're sort of floundering around. But as the season went on, you could see them mesh and get better. And the defensive line was doing very well. And they came up with really good rush, you know, pressuring the quarterback and so forth. Um, I grew to really respect, you know, what they were doing and, and what this new defensive coordinator was infusing into these guys and the way that they were playing, they did not give up. They may not necessarily have played the best games, you know, during uh, periods of the season, but they got better and better and better. And by the end of the football season, you know, this is a a team that is ready to take the next step and become more of a dominant team, uh, not just rushing, but if we can keep everybody in place because, you know, there are going to be people who are want better contracts and all of that stuff, and, you know, and far be it from me or anybody else to say that, you know, they don't deserve more money. But I hope that the pivotal pieces will um, be in place for next year's um, season, and I hope everybody can stay stay healthy and you know work out during the off season and and get ready for the next year. Harry, on a related note, I think when I look at this current roster, it's still a relatively young roster. A lot of these players have been drafted over the last few years, and I want to bring it back to your experience when you joined the Giants because you joined the Giants during a period of time that the franchise was in transition as they made the move from the 70s to the 80s. And, and I look at this roster, and Saquon Barkley was named the captain. 
within the second year of his career. Daniel Jones was named a captain very early in his career, and you were named a captain very early in your career. But that was a veteran team, you can argue. I guess what I'm mm-hmm. getting at, Harry, is when you're a team that's in that transitional period, which you can argue the current team is, how important is it that these young players, like yourself, when you joined the team in the late 70s, takes on that leadership role to help make the team move ahead and make that jump? Well, you know, those guys really are the future. And the reason why they are captains is not necessarily all that they do on the field, but the way that they conduct themselves off the field, the way that they conduct themselves in meetings, the way that they conduct themselves in the weight room, um, it, the, the way that they uh, are not just about them, but they're looking to empower and just work with their teammates to get better. That's the reason why those guys are captains. You know, when you have a guy who, well, I'm not going to go down that road. <laughs> I was going to say something, but let me just keep my keep my opinions to myself. <laughs> there are guys. There no no. There there are guys who are, um, you know, might be great players, but the way that they conduct themselves, being selfish or whatever. Um, you know, other players see it, and they lose respect from the other players. And so these guys are the ones who are going to be there through hell or high water. You know, they're about making um, the team better. And so whether it was when when I played way back in the day, the ancient times with the um, with the uh, you know, helmet that you fold up and put in in, in the back <laughs> of your pocket or whatever. No, it's 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 you know when you're selected as a captain by your teammates, yeah, it's, it's it really is an honor. Uh-huh. And again, uh, again, it's about carrying yourself in such a way that you understand that it's about the team. It's not about you or anybody else. It's about the team and and the team succeeding. Final question for me, Harry. What's the next step now uh, in terms of this team? Where do you want to see them improve next year? And just your overall thoughts on Daniel Jones moving forward into season three. Obviously, his progression is a big is a uh, big key to where this team is going. Well, you know, I'd love to see Daniel Jones uh, secure the ball and play a more effective uh, game. He's had some highs, but he's also had some lows, and. Um, yeah, I'd like to see him be more of a solid, you know, quarterback. I'd like for um, Saquon to come back and continue to play well. Um, I would like for the offensive line to be able to uh, play a more solid game and protect uh, Daniel Jones. Um, again. I'd love for the defense to become more and more aggressive and tenacious um, to develop an attitude whereby <clears throat> teams and, and 
offensive units around the league grow, um, uh, to respect, you know, the Giants' defense and so forth. Um, I, I'd like to see that, but, you know, it, you, you might not necessarily get everything you want this year, but I think that with the success that they had this past season, they know now what they're capable of doing. And it's up to them. And, you know, all of those guys should be in the locker room and in the training room and in the in the um, weightlifting room now preparing for uh, next season. And just knowing and understanding what their role is, um, you know, they, they're guys who, um, you know, they can, they can do it if they want to do it. The only, the only factor that creeps in there is the injury factor, and you can't do anything about that. But when they uh, step on the field uh, next season, you know, everybody should be raring to go and um, anxious to win and and just be the best team that they can be. We're talking with Hall of Fame linebacker Harry Carson, Giants legend. And that brings me to last question I have for you, Harry, about continuity on an NFL team. Because as you mentioned, you can never predict the injury bug. You hope everybody no. stays healthy for 16 games. Impossible to determine that. But I think another important aspect as this Giants team looks to take the next step is continuity on the coaching staff. And you could speak from experience, Harry, because when you join the Giants, I mean, you need two hands to determine how many defensive coordinators you had to deal with throughout the course of your career, it looks as if Joe Judge's staff, for the most part, is going to return, whether it be Jason Garrett, the offensive coordinator, Patrick Graham, the defensive coordinator. How important is that? I tend to emphasize that you played the game. I'm curious your perspective. When you have a staff that stays together, how important is that even in today's NFL? Well, I mean, you can have a staff that, I had coaches who kind of came and they went. But you have to not necessarily have continuity. It's, it's up to each player to take, just understand what their role is and be the best that they can be. Because not only are coaches moving, players are moving. Sure. And so, you know, players... You know they can they can play this year with the Giants and they wind up going someplace next next year and you know they have to show what they can do under a new coach a new new defensive system or offensive system or, or whatever so there's always constant change but uh, you got to be able to adjust to the change and that change isn't necessarily you know just about you know from week to week or whatever. That change can be from play to play. You know, I, I, Patrick Graham is from that Bill Belichick tree, and I see when I see him on the sideline talking to his players, it kind of reminds me of Bill Belichick as a defense coordinator making changes during the course of the game of stuff that we had not even practiced during the course of the week because, you know, the opposing team 
showed us something that we had never really seen. So change is always going to be there. Uh, you, you just have to know how to interpret everything and and be able to implement change, uh, whether it's with a coach or a play or whatever. Uh, you have to be able to improvise on the fly and just be the best player that you can be and help your team win. I lied, Harry. One more quick follow-up because you were there with Ray Perkins. Don't lie to me. Don't lie to me. (laughs) (laughs) You were there with Ray Perkins and then Bill Parcells. They had that strong voice at the top of the totem pole in terms of everything we're talking about so far in this interview. Do you think the Mm -hmm. Giants have that guy in Joe Judge? Um, You know what? I haven't. I can't answer that question because everything that I know about Joe Judge is what I've seen on television. And I haven't really spent a whole lot of time around him. I know that the players respect him, uh, but I can't make any personal judgment myself on uh, Joe Judge. You know, the coaches who um, I played for, I know those guys from head to toe. Ray Perkins was that guy who would walk into a meeting room and he would just stand there while everybody was talking, and he wouldn't say a word until everybody quieted down. And then, after maybe two or three seconds of silence, he would he would start to talk. Parcells, um, he would come in and he'd have something to say. They all of the coaches are are, are different. Sometimes it works um, for that particular coach. Sometimes it doesn't. Joe Judge, I, I think that he probably is—he's bringing some a, a little part of Bill Belichick with him, um, you know, in this position as as head coach. Because um, you know, I've heard a couple of things that he has said, and I think to myself, "Damn, sounds just <laughs> like Belichick," <laughs> you, you know. But I can't, like I said, I, I can't determine. Well, I can't really say because I haven't really spent a whole lot of time around it, but I know exactly what he's looking to do, and I applaud him, and I think he's going to get the job done. Well, Harry, hopefully once this damn pandemic is over, all of us can get back in the building and we can all interact with Joe Judge and the coaching staff a little bit more than we've been able to over this past year. Harry, awesome stuff, man. We really thank you so much for being with us. Stay safe out there, and we'll talk to you again soon, okay? Thanks a lot, Harry. All right, take care. All right, bye-bye. That's Harry Carson, giant great. Pro Football Hall of Famer, Giant Ring of Honor honor member. I could sit here for days talking about all the great stuff Harry's done and his accomplishments, but most of you guys know it already anyway, so I won't. But great stuff from Harry Carson. We thank him for joining us. Big Blue Kickoff Live is brought to you by the new X-Series of Scratch-Offs from the New York Lottery. Now you can multiply your winnings up to 200 times. Please play responsibly. Limited Giant season tickets are now on sale for the 2021 season. In addition to ticket savings, membership benefits include access to exclusive events, experiences, pre-sales, and more. You can lock in your seat starting at just 100 bucks. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com slash tickets for more information and Lance just really good stuff from Harry there he brings such a a good perspective for someone that played the game and just really thinks about the game in a unique way yeah it was just great listening to some of the stories that he shared going back to his days of course with Marty Schottenheimer and fact that he played 
when you had Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick and to now, I thought one of the most interesting observations that he had, not to say that we're elevating Patrick Graham to that level, but he said by just watching Patrick Graham interact with the defensive players on the sideline, it reminds him of the mannerism of a Bill Belichick in terms of what he often did on the sideline in between possessions and in between drives. And he even said that there are other things that he sees in individuals that have come from the Belichick coaching tree. And it's no surprise. Listen, when you watch and observe an individual like a Bill Parcells or a Bill Belichick, and then you go on to other teams or other opportunities where you're a head coach, I don't think it should be stunning that you take a little bit of what they had and you apply it to your new environment. So I think that there's a little bit that is rubbed off from Bill Belichick to the current coaches and assistants that are on this staff. And it's just a matter of whether or not you could get that consistency on the field. Because, you know, Harry even said it still comes down to the players. At the end of the day, and any player will tell you this, John, you could have the greatest coach in the history of mankind. They've got to be able to get the players to perform at a level that helps you win games. As great as the coaching is, the players still need to do the heavy lifting. And that's going to determine the outlook of this team moving forward. 973-667-1960 now with Harry off the line. We do have an open line if you want to get in and talk some football with us. Don't miss out on your chance to experience a premier hospitality experience watching Giant games and world-class concerts in 2021 as a Giant Suite partner. Limited full-season locations are available or place a deposit for individual games. Call 888-NYG-1925 or visit Giants.com suites for more information. Also, don't forget that the New York Giants and Quest Diagnostics want our fans to come back stronger than ever. Now you can order your lab test through Quest Direct to get the health answers you need most. Let's go to the phones at 973-667-1960 and say hello to our first caller of the show. Caller, what's your name and where are you calling from? Hey, John. Len from Columbia, Maryland. Harry Carson to Lenning, Columbia, Maryland. How about that? <laughs> I tell you, that was a nice interview, by the way. Thank you. And... um he sounds so gentle, John. <laughs> He's not, uh, so but yes, he does. <laughs> so different from what I remember uh, of number 53 on the field. He just sounded so gentle, and it was nice to hear. And I hope everything is going real well for the guy, because he was a terrific player. You know, one of the things that I can't... Now, what, um, help me a little bit. I, I didn't catch the beginning of the interview. Yeah. He, he started in 74 or 76? 76, 76 he was 76, 76. was year one, yeah. Um, this, is, this is somewhat related then to what um, he was going through. But, you know, when you talk about continuity at that time, one, one thing that kind of gets overlooked, this, this team played in four stadiums in three years. Yeah, Shea, um, Yale, I mean, Giants Stadium, woke up, right? Those players woke up and couldn't figure out what state to go to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and that was, I think that had a lot to do with, um, you know, they just, it just never settled down. So Len, 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 just so I have it right, it was the Polo Grounds, right? No, then no, it was... no not, in, not in that period. What was it then? Uh, well, what was well the order in 73, they were at, in 73, they were at Yankee Stadium. They played half a season there. Okay. And then they went to, uh, they, they went to, oh God, <laughs> they took us to the Yale Bowl. Right, I remember the elbow. Okay, for, for a year and a half, and then we came back and played one year at Shea. Shea, okay, and that then we opened Giant Stadium. Yep, yep, got it. So that was, you know, that was '76, and um, that season we were a little, even in '76, we were, we were a little late getting into the stadium. They were just finishing it off, so it wasn't like the first week we were on the road for a while. 
but it was, um, I mean, even as a fan, I mean, you know, you figured out, okay, now where am I going? <laughs> <laughs> so it had to be tough. It, you know, it had to be tough on the players. But, hey, nice interview with Harry. Well, uh, like, just, just real quick just, here, because uh, I'm looking it up. By the time Harry arrived in 1976, though, he yes. only played at Giant Stadium. Yes, yes, he was at so Giant Stadium. So he wouldn't have experienced really what you were talking about a, previously. A previous time, yeah, and, right. you know, the bad times of the 70s. So then, it, I have a question. It wasn't help that we were running all over the place. I have a question for you. Then again, this is I could probably just Google this, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So, what was the, what was the team's last year playing in the Polo Grounds? Then the, we moved to Yankees. They moved to Yankee Stadium in '56. Okay. Oh, it was '56. Okay, it was that long ago. Yeah. So 1955, and uh, we, you know, came across the river, the Harlem River, and started playing practically across the street. Those stadiums. Uh, yeah, I'm exaggerating a bit, but they were almost right next to each other. And by the way, Paul Dottino was the first one in the stadium, I believe, when they made that move, if I'm not mistaken, right? Is that true? No. <laughs> he may have been. You know, the Polo Grounds was an interesting football stadium. It was really built for football. Um, it was kind of weird for baseball. But, um, you know, every time, I, every time I see that Willie Mays catch, 1954, with his back to the plate, sure. uh, the stands are up there, and, <laughs> you know, old memories – uh, when the old man took me to my first games, uh, we sat in what was then the bleachers of the polo grounds, and it was Willie's making the catch. And if you just go over his right shoulder, up up about fifteen or twenty rows, that was my dad and I. Not not that game, but that, he always took me to the end zone. Nice. And he said this is the best place to watch it. So every time I see Willie make that, you know, film of him making that catch, I, you know, I think of the old man up there because that's that's where we sat, right there in those bleachers. And and that's where the locker rooms were, and the players had to come all the way. They were from their in benches. center field. Uh, I'm sorry. The, the the locker rooms were out in center field. Yeah, the locker rooms were in center field. Oh, and, I didn't uh, know that. <laughs> you know the longest the longest walk in the history of mankind was Ralph Branco walking off the mound in 1951 after Thompson hit the home run. He couldn't run into the dugout. He had to walk from the. <laughs> From the mound all the way back to Central all the way Jeez, back wow. to the uh, to that yeah. uh, you know where they where they were and that's uh, uh, you know the baseball giants had their offices there but the visiting team went up one side there was a very narrow stairway and the home team the giants went up if I remember correctly the giants went up on the right side and uh, from home plate and the visiting team went up on the left side those were but that was a you know it was a good football stadium. Yankee Stadium was not meant for football. You could get pretty far away from the field when you were at Yankee Stadium. Hey, thanks for giving me a chance to uh, remember some things. I, I appreciate hey, we that. we learned. Guy. We yeah, learned. No problem. problem. Yeah, yeah. I, well, let me let me mention a couple of things. Um, uh, first of all, congratulations to the Bucks. Um, round of applause for Tommy. You know, geez, just just amazing. But you know, a couple other players in that game. And I think you may have talked about it a little bit on Monday. Um, geez, those two linebackers on Tampa Bay, who, by the way, were the only two Tampa players to make the AP All-Pro team, both the linebackers. And, geez, that number 45, White, wow, what a game. Yeah, he had a heck of a game. I, he was, I think he was the best player on the field on Sunday. See, I, I think Levante David was just as good, if not better, just because he had to cover Travis Kelsey. Yeah, and, yeah, and that, that, That's tough. True. I know you talked about that on Monday, John. I think you mentioned uh, David covering Kelsey. He did a good job, but, boy, White seemed to be all over the, all over the field. And um, l- let me preface my next comment by saying I'm, I'm glad we got Andrew Thomas. I'm not upset with 
the fact that we didn't go in another direction. Tristan Wurst is good, though, man. Whoo, Tristan Wurst is good. good. Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> man, he just walls off, um, you know, pass rushers. And, uh, you know, he's just knocking people out of the way in the run game. He's going to be a terrific player. Well, let's let's hope that Andrew is, too. Hey, a couple of things. One, one other quick thing. Um, you know, the website had a... Um, a breakdown of of uh, schedules, and, you know, from hardest schedule to easiest schedule. Pittsburgh at the top with the hardest schedule, and the Giants down around twenty six, twenty seven. I don't know if you had a chance to look at it, Sean and Lance. Well, is that um, based on the two thousand twenty record? Yes, yes, that was based on the two thousand twenty record. That the Giants would have the fourth, you know, according to the article, the fourth easiest schedule. Um. But of course, that can change based on oh, how yeah, teams yeah, of are. Course, next of course, I mean, so. here we are yeah. in February. Right. You know, we're just in February. But you know, it's, it's kind of interesting because I wanted to talk about the schedule a little bit. If you could, if you can give me another minute here, I'll make it quick. Yeah, really fast, um, really fast. Yeah, uh, you know, another way to look at. By, by the way, Dallas and the Eagles had easier schedules according well, to well, this. Of course, according to this thing, and the right. Redskins were. I think I'd have like 18 or 19 in terms of toughest schedule. Remember, that makes sense because they, yeah. you know, they're going to share 14 opponents on that yeah. schedule. So Yeah. Here, here's another way to look at that schedule thing, John. Six, and, and Lance, um, six of our eight home games, right, well, maybe nine, who knows, but six of our currently eight home games are against non-playoff teams. Yeah, the home schedule, Len, if, you know, God willing, that building is full next year, yeah. you'll have a chance to see some wins at home. Yeah. But, I, but I, I might hesitate traveling to see this team play on the road because that could get a little bit rough. I'm not well, going to yeah, lie to both, you. Both, both <laughs> Kansas City and Tampa Bay on the road. Yeah, and the Saints and the Bears. Yeah, it's, there you go. There you go. Easy. There you go. But, well, um, and plus, you know, the other, the other two home games – uh, one of them is against the Redskins, and of course we always play well against the Redskins, particularly in New York. Washington. And uh, so the home schedule looks like we can, you know, we can get some things done, and um, you know, hopefully it opens up. They, you know, they mailed um, the season ticket holders yesterday. We got our, you know, we got our information about next year. Uh, shout out to ownership. Um, they kept the prices the same. As two years ago, which I appreciate, and they continued with their value pricing on the preseason. So, um, and of course, who knows how many preseason games is even going to be? So, well, well, you know, John, very interesting the way they wrote wrote the letter. Um, you, you're going to wind up paying for for ten games, nine regular season games in anticipation that maybe you'll have an extra one, right? And one preseason game. Oh, that's interesting. Which which leads me to believe that if it goes to a seventeenth game, there's only going to be two preseason games. Uh, I think that's oh, one yeah. home, one away. I think that's likely. And the but the other option, of course, was um, you know it stays as is, and we do eight eight home games, two two home preseason games, but in some shape, manner, or form, you pay for ten, right. and then they give you money back if they don't play all the games. You know that kind of thing. So, Len, well, thank you, Len. Exactly I appreciate why the call, bud. I, I don't okay. put much substance and appreciate the phone call into looking ahead at the schedule. First of all, I hate strength of schedule. I think it's absolutely meaningless. Now, I think it's meaningful, though, once you get through the season and you look back. You look back. Okay. Was. Yes, that, that, well, that's, well, that, fun. that's fun. And that's what I thought he was indicating, John, but that's no, not what not. it sounded no, like. No, he it was wasn't. He, no, no, no. He was not indicating. He was looking at And here's the other thing why I also would be careful about looking back. Case in point. 
I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, look at how close the Giants played the Bucks on Monday Night Football. <laughs> very, very I would argue team. that Tampa Bay team was unlike anything we saw in the Super yeah, Bowl. That is correct. Yes, okay? That is so, correct. so that's another reason why, John, I'm a little skeptical of looking back because teams evolve and change. But here's an interesting point, and I'm looking at my numbers that I've crunched over the years. Seven new playoff teams punched their ticket this year. Yep. Mm-hmm. Do you know that the Giants played six of those seven teams? <laughs> so, well, remember last year we actually got into a debate with Len before the year about those first four games, and he goes, but none of those teams were playoff teams. We're like, no, but hold on. Yeah. The Bears won nine, the, the Steelers won nine, the Rams won nine, and like they were all these like borderline playoff teams that were just right really close to making it but didn't. Yeah, well, 100%. But that's another reason why if you just go based on the analysis of right. – didn't make the playoffs, well, it could have been a team that was right on the border and just missed out. Or you look at a team like Cleveland, John, which is a team the Giants did play, which right. was not mathematically right there last year necessarily, and they made quite a turnaround yeah, because like, of how they drafted the coaching staff. So that's why I don't get caught up in, oh, well, the Giants are playing a number of teams that didn't make the playoffs. For all we know, all of those teams could be playoff teams next Well, like, season. for example, for those home games, right, what happens if the Panthers trade for Deshaun Watson? Then all of a sudden you're like, uh oh, completely changes the outlook of the team. <laughs> you know yeah. what happens if 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 the Broncos, you know, wind up with some kind of great quarterback somehow in a trade? You know, um, what if the Broncos trade for Carson Wentz, right? And he has a big bounce back year. Who knows what could happen? Is well, my hold point. on. The perfect example, John, is the Bucks. The Bucks had Jameis Winston at this time last right, year, exactly. And then they went out and they got Tom Brady. So and, I think that changes things a little by, bit. And by the, the way, I did do the math on this. I did this with Feagles a couple weeks ago, or maybe it was last week. Whatever it was. Do you, and you probably haven't looked at this, Lance, do you know what the Giants' strength, strength of schedule was this year? In terms of when you add up all the teams that they yep, played their this opponents. season? Yep, their opponents. No, I do not know off the it top was of my head. It literally the middle of the league. It was almost exactly 500, which naturally would be right in the middle of the league, right? Because that's sure. how the opponents work. So that's where the Giants wound up this year. And, you know, the reason, quite frankly— you know, their out-of-division schedule was, was very difficult because the NFC West and the AFC North was pretty good. The reason that all evened out is because the NFC East records were terrible. And it's the same reason, frankly, when you look at next year's strength of schedule, why they're probably so low on the list, because there's six games against the Eagles, 100%. Washington, and Dallas, yeah. who have a combined winning percentage down in the dumps. And I think we all expect... Uh, Dallas to be better because Dak Prescott's going to be healthy, right? We don't. Who knows what's going to happen with the Eagles with their quarterback situation, and who knows what's going to happen with Washington. So that's why that strength of schedule is where it is for next year. But I would not put a whole ton of stock in that. No, and I agree with you. I think that's a great point. You got to look in house before you look out of the house. And yeah, it was a down year, so of course everybody within the division is going to benefit from that because nobody ran away with the division. And you can't just assume. And I think based on NFL history, highly unlikely you're going to have two straight down years in the same division. Yeah, which that's means correct. That John, next year, I would figure somebody is going to have at least nine wins to probably win the division. In all likelihood. Listen, I could be wrong. Okay, I don't have no, a crystal ball. No, 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 you're right. I but if I was a agree. betting man, I would say it's probably going to take about nine to ten wins like we usually have to win the division. Well, remember, if you go in 17 games now, you better win 10. If you're going 17 Absolutely. game regular season now, you better not go nine and eight. You better go 10 and seven. 
It's so weird thinking about odd numbers of games, right? It's just so weird. You know, we've yeah. been talking our whole lives. You know, we when when we were, I guess, what was it, junior high? Or I guess I was probably maybe in, in high school, you were in junior high when they went from the four divisions to the three, and or rather the three divisions to the four. And that was a big change with kind of how you, you know, figured everything out. But now going to 17 games, I mean... <laughs> The last time it wasn't a 16-game schedule, I don't think you were born yet. I don't think I was born yet either. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a long time yeah. ago. It's just, a, you know, you got to look at, you know, all of a sudden the 1,000-yard rusher isn't as impressive, right, because you have another game to get there. All these things change just because they're another game. It's just a weird thing to well, think Well, because about. on top of that, you've got the 17 games, but then you also have the additional playoff spot too, right, which is good. uneven, yeah, good which point took too. away the bye from one of the teams. So everything is out of whack. It is. Big Blue Kickoff 5 is brought to you by the new X-Series of Scratch in the New York Lottery. You can now multiply your winnings up to 200 times. Please play responsibly. Hey, Giant fans, get a New York Giants checking account from Investors Bank with the Giants brand, the debit card, security features, and discounts at the Giants online shop. You can earn up to $250 when you open an account at InvestorsBank.com slash Giants. Member FDIC. We have an open line, folks. 973-667-1960. 973-667-1960. Lance, I want to bring a one piece of news here that came down today because... It just seems so ridiculous to me that I had to like blink to make sure I wasn't imagining it. And I'm not I'm not sure if you know what I'm gonna say here, but the Ravens Orlando Brown I did see that, yeah. <laughs> wants to be traded after tweeting his desire to only play left tackle. He filled in there for I'm just reading Ian Rappaport's tweet now, by the way. He filled in there for Ronnie Stanley and Shine this season. Brown will only play for a team that will play him at his preferred spot. Baltimore would need a major haul in return. This is his follow-up tweet. The Ravens have Ronnie Stanley coming back at left tackle, but they value Orlando Brown significantly, would need major compensation to deal him. But with the focus so intensely on quarterbacks, the guys who protect them are just as valuable. You know, not this is. I mean, I've never thought I'd see this before. <laughs> and said, by the way, it's not like right tackles don't get paid. Did anyone see what like Jack Conklin got paid this last off season? Sure, yeah. he got paid a ton of money. This just it it. it like I saw this and I'm like, offensive tackles are doing this now. What the hell's going on here? Well, I don't know if this is more of the agent than he himself. It is kind of bizarre because you know the other thing is Brown was a third round pick in 2018. So if he was on an expiring contract, he's two years here. Come on. I would say, okay, I understand he's trying to push his leverage here, but you know we're talking about somebody that you know could also stay with a team that has proven it can win consistently. You're part of a good offensive line. You've got a dynamic quarterback. You've got one of the best run games in the NFL. You know that also, John. I would argue increases your value. You know, you got to be careful what you wish for. You want to go to another team, you want to play left tackle, and then all of a sudden you go to a team that is in desperate need of a left tackle, but they've got so many other issues. Now all of a sudden your stock is not as high as it was, and you know with contracts not guaranteed, you got to be very careful what you wish for. So I don't know necessarily what the mindset, what the end goal of all of this is. Here's the other thing if you're Baltimore. You got and, Ronnie Stanley coming off a significant injury. Remember, he went down very early this past season. Right That's after, why. And right yeah. after he got his big extension, by the way. 100%. Yeah. But that's why Orlando Brown played the bulk of this season at left tackle because they moved him over immediately. So if you're Baltimore, I don't think 
Harbaugh is in a rush to get rid of not only your starting right tackle, but an insurance policy. God forbid Stanley has a setback. And by the way, if anything, in my opinion, the Ravens make things easier on Ronnie Stanley. You know, I mean, easier on Orlando Brown, right? You know, we talk about this all the time with the Giants, right? They run into trouble with their offensive line when they have to throw it a lot and teams can pin their ears back and rush the passer. Do you know what you can never do against the Ravens ever? Just pin your ears back and rush the passer. No, like, you can't. Like, how many seven-step drops is Lamar Jackson taking? It's, like, (laughs) literally not even in their offense. So, if anything, you know, his life there is easier. If he all of a sudden shows up and he's blocking for a a Kirk Cousins-type quarterback or, you know, one of these guys that isn't quite as mobile, right? All of a sudden, your job's a lot tougher when you got a statue back there rather than you know, blocking for a guy like Lamar Jackson, who's basically a, a running back or wide receiver level athlete with quarterback skill, obviously, which makes your job as an offensive lineman much, much simpler. That's why it's a little bit crazy that this is what he's thinking about right now, because as I said, you switch to a different uniform, all of a sudden the dynamics change. Now, while we're having this conversation, John, I'm just thinking out loud, and once again, this may be a little bit out of the realm, but I'm wondering, has Stanley played right tackle? I guess what I'm getting at, would Baltimore say to Stanley, hey, Mm. you're coming off a significant injury, are you open to maybe moving to right to give Brown an opportunity to stay at left? Just a thought there. Yeah, I know they're paying him a lot of money. But remember, I, we I talk know, about it yeah. often, John. Right tackle and left tackle is just as important. Why? <laughs> they are. You can't, hide the, you can't hide a tackle in the NFL. Yeah, and half the time, the best pass rusher is lining up over your right tackle, exactly. now, not your left tackle. Yeah, I'm with you. I, I know in his last year at Notre Dame, he played left tackle. He's only played left tackle in the NFL, Ronnie Stanley. I'd have to look deeper. Maybe I You can know what? I'm looking up now. That, as a but... sophomore in 2013, he started all 13 games yeah, at right tackle. There you go. So at it, Notre Dame. It's. It's kind of that same deal with, like, Nate Solder, right, where we kind of played that one year at right tackle. But, of course, Stanley's a younger guy and all that stuff. But, anyway, yeah, I just found that. I saw that. I'm like, wow, this is is a brand-new world when tackles are demanding to get traded if they don't play their preferred side. It's like, dude, really? It's just funny. 973-667-1960. Let's go back to the phones. Cole, you're on the air. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hey, it's Scott from New Mexico. Hey, Scotty. Uh, interesting conversation with uh, Harry Carson, but I want to go back to the Tampa Bay game for a second and parallel it to what the Giants are going to do. I know none of you have done your draft analysis yet, but here's my thinking. There was a section of that game that probably went unnoticed, but I thought it was pivotal, and I thought the game was over as soon as this occurred. I was, I think, in the third quarter, and the Buccaneers ran the ball, I think, eight or nine times in a row and got three first downs. They took up about six and a half or seven minutes. And they basically took any chance of Kansas City sort of coming back at that point. I don't know if you remember the sequence or not, but I think it was nine runs, maybe one pass. You mean in the Super Bowl you're talking about? Yes, right? in the Super okay, Bowl, right. Mm-hmm. And it changed my opinion as to where the Giants should go from uh, Kyle Pitts, which everybody's sort of, uh, he's sort of like the the person of the day, to more of an offensive tackle in the first round. And here's my rationale. If you look at some of the teams that have been successful, like Dallas when they drafted Zach Martin, Teron Smith, and Travis Frederick, all who were all pros, 
and you go back to, say, taking Indianapolis, all drafting first-rounders in, uh, probably in four or five years consecutively. Wouldn't it make sense, since the Giants have problems on the offensive line, and if, if Saquon Barkley comes back and they keep Wayne Gallman, they're going to have to run the football in order to really win football games. Now, Scott, I, just, remember, just remember one thing. And I sure. see the span you're talking about. The Bucks got the ball at 13:32 to go in the fourth right. quarter, and they ran it one, two, three, four, five, five, six, seven, seven out of eight times, and they gained right. three first downs. Correct. But do you know why that that series of plays was significant? It's because they were up 31 to nine because of Tom Brady right. in the passing game. So I wouldn't get too obsessed with that. No, but what, set of what plays. I'm That's saying is, any chance if there was any chance of Kansas City coming back, they they basically buried them right then. Right, but you got to get the lead first. Sure, <laughs> I, I'm not arguing. I'm not arguing your point. <laughs> right, uh, but the point being is, when I looked at PFF's numbers for the Giants. Uh, Although Andrew Thomas really improved a great deal during the season, he still had 57 pressures, which was yep. 14 more than anyone else in that position. And if you switch to the other side with Cameron Fleming, he was the sixth worst right tackle in the league. You can't have people like that, and I'm hoping Andrew Thomas will just keep developing, but you can't have that and expect to run the football. So, no, Scott, look, I, I agree with you, and, and, I, and I think I said this on a show with Fiegels a couple weeks ago, and I, liked, I, don't okay. think, I don't think I've actually talked to Lance about this yet. I'd like to get his take on it too, where if they sit there at number 11 and they look at their board and say, and the guy I use as an example is Rashawn Slater out of Northwestern, Okay. If, if they consider him to be the best player on their board, he's a guy that played left tackle Northwestern, but some people think he could play guard or even center. So he's a guy that's very versatile, and you can move around and can do a lot of different things. If that guy is by far the best guy on their board, I have no issue with them picking him at 11, only because I think when you look at this Giants team, they have so many young guys on the line that I would consider to be unproven, like Shane Lemieux. Okay, he got some run. Oh, do we know he's really good? No. Uh, right. Do we know that Andrew Thomas is going to be a star left tackle? No. But I think, like you, to your point, we like the progress he made. I don't right. think we have any idea if, if Matt Parrott's going to be any good at right tackle. I don't think we have any clue if that's the case. We don't know about Will Hernandez. So if you bring in a guy like Slater, if, again, you think he's that talented— he could almost be the guy that can just go to the spot where the other player doesn't work out. So I'm almost hesitant to draft a guy that can only play tackle because that's the only position Matt Pear can play too. And then you're basically right. just throwing away your third-round pick from last year, which I'm not a huge fan of. But if you're sitting there, Lance, and you think Slater's awesome, and I have no problem adding another very high-end talented person to the offensive line. I really don't. Yeah, I think also, to your point, if somebody has a little bit more versatility, I'd be even more attractive to that player because if you're going to draft somebody that high, you clearly want them to play year one, right. which means you need to find the spot for them to be inserted into the offensive line. And in order for that to be accomplished, it may be a position that perhaps they didn't play as a senior in college, but maybe they have experience as a junior or a sophomore, whatever it may be. Here's the best example I'll give you. John, in terms of what you're talking about, and this relates to your question, Scott, the San Francisco 49ers have drafted a defensive lineman in the first round in five of the last six years. Now, if right. we were hosting a show on Niners.com and we were fielding calls, I guarantee you we'd hear from, well, the Niners could utilize a wide receiver. They could utilize a secondary or member. Quarterback. That would be Yeah, that would be right. right the conversation. And we get the same phone calls from Giants fans. This is not a critique, but this is an example of, Teams have the mindset 
just because we may feel good about that position doesn't mean you can't utilize more talent there and you can't right. utilize more depth. And while I understand the Niners didn't make the playoffs this year, part of it was they were hammered by injuries. But Correct. the fact that they emphasized the defensive line, I would say, helped them keep their head above water because when Nick Bosa got hurt, who was their first-round pick in 19, they at least felt good about a number of the guys they had drafted since that they could insert into the lineup. So you can never have enough at any position, which brings it back full circle to the Giants. If the Giants feel there's a really good offensive lineman who could be interchangeable between guard and tackle, and that's the highest guy on their board or one of their highest guys, I'd have absolutely no issue if that's the direction they wanted to go in. Right. Well, here, and I'll end it on this because I know you're short on time. Uh, with Saquon Barkley coming back, this is the reason why I'm asking the question. Saquon Barkley's coming back. Hopefully he'll be 100% healthy, but we don't know until he actually starts playing. He averaged about 4.7 yards uh, a carry in his uh, two 1,000-yard seasons, and Wayne Goldman this year averaged 4.6 uh, with the line that he had. I wanted to know, and, and I'll take the question off the air, can those two guys integrate into a backfield where they not necessarily share equal time, but they can work effectively together as a tandem. Because what I noticed is everything was so calm, Barkley, and so Wayne Goldman was an afterthought. And yet Wayne Goldman this year proved that he can be a uh, first down uh, type of uh, uh, um, uh, halfback or whatever. And I want to know if those two guys can actually work together so that they actually strengthen the running attack. And I'll be glad to take your answers off the air, guys. Thanks again. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate the call. Yeah, I mean, I don't see why those guys can't be a, a you know, one and two. Again, I wouldn't make it a, a 1A, 1B where they're getting equal amount of touches. I thought Wayne Gallman was good this year. He proved he's an NFL caliber running back. Am I taking carries away from Saquon Barkley but optionally to, to give to him? No. Um, but, yeah, I mean, first of all, they have to resign Gallman. He's, yeah, he's a free, a free agent. agent. First things yeah. first. But, to, to me, Lance, yeah, I mean, I think the, I think they complement each other. I think Gallman would probably be the guy that I use in shorter yardage situations because he kind of gets up field quicker, you know what I mean, um, where Saquon does a little bit more dancing and things like that. And I also want to see how Saquon runs in that in that different style, right? It was more of a straight-ahead power running game with Gallman than it was with Barkley. How does he adjust to you know, that style of rushing attack? So, yeah, look, I, I don't see any reason why they can't work together, but... If Barkley is back and he's a thousand percent and all that stuff, I would be hard pressed to think that he's still not getting his twenty to twenty five touches again. Well, also remember, Jason Garrett comes from a system where he fed Zeke, okay, for all those years in Dallas again, that they were together. And again and again. Exactly. And again. <laughs> so what makes you think that Saquon comes back and now all of a sudden Garrett's gonna have the philosophy of it's gotta be a 50-50 split. Assuming, of course, they re-sign a guy like Wayne Goldman. And Wayne, I'm sure, is saying to himself, Well, the reason why I showed that I could be a number one back, or at least shown more than just flashes, is because my volume of carries went up. So right now, Wayne Goldman, I'm sure, is saying to himself, as well as his representatives, his value is as high as it perhaps could get because of the volume of work he received. So he's, I'm sure, going to be seeking an opportunity to be more of a lead back than come back as a complimentary guy. That's my personal opinion. That doesn't mean that's going to happen, and that's nothing that the Giants have indicated. It's just what I would put two and two together and come to the conclusion of. Now, I don't think the Giants' success, John, on the ground next year is dependent on having a one-two punch. I think Barkley could come back. 
they could give him a number one workload. He's going to have to make an adjustment, to your point, in terms of the different style running. But I don't think the Giants have to be worried about Barkley's coming off a torn ACL. There's no way they could give him 20 to 22 touches a game, combination of receptions and runs. I think that's more than feasible. So the Giants then have to entertain the idea or ask themselves the question, who would be the perfect complement who doesn't need 15 carries a game to get comfortable, who could come in with a very small workload and be effective, whether it be in short yarded situations, goal line back, or just be that energizer bunny where you bring him in for five or six touches a game and he gives you exactly what you need. That's what I think they need to ask themselves. I don't think the Giants need to ask themselves, how can we create a 50-50 split? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm, I'm with you 100%. No question about it. Lance, good stuff today, my friend. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Big Blue Kickoff Live was presented by the new X series of scratch-offs in the New York Lottery. Now you can multiply your winnings up to 200 times. Please play responsibly. Big Blue Kickoff Live is part of the Giants Podcast Network presented by Investors Bank. You can find the archive of this show and all of our programs at Giants.com slash podcast, the Giants mobile app, and your favorite podcast platforms. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star positive review if you like what you hear. For Lance Menno, I'm John Schmelk. Tomorrow, Datino and Fiegels joins you at noon on Big Blue Kickoff Live. We'll see you then, everybody. Stay safe.